0: Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2,
1: Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. And this is our review of The Final Countdown. No, not the Europe song. This one stars Kurt Douglas, Martin Sheen, James Ferentino, Katherine Ross, Ron O'Neill, Sunteco, Lloyd Kaufman, and Charles Durning. Directed by Don Taylor, released in 1980 on a $12.5 million budget, grossed $16.6 million at the box office. So modest success, but the movie has developed a cult status through the years. Ron, you ever seen The Final Countdown before?
0: I've never seen the final countdown until literally like the day before we recorded this.
1: Wow, I'm surprised you missed this one. Wow, this I would have thought this would be right up your alley, man.
0: I mean, it was. Uh, it has a lot of things that that appeals to me. That, that that's for sure. I mean, we could just start with the fact that Lloyd Kaufman is in it as an actor, which is always worthy of checking out
1: right and and was one of the co-producers on this along with kirk douglas's uh son peter so who, who put this thing together uh, man i gosh i can't remember a time when i don't remember this movie i saw it as a kid uh when uh my dad was in the navy i mentioned that before on the show and so anytime like navy kind of movies you know we're renting them he'd be like oh let's get out a shot kirk douglas midway you know hey get that a role martin sheen and i'm not having any idea like what this was about probably 1986 or 87 we rented it or something right when the home rental race was happening and I just remember being totally fascinated with it and my brother in particular who bless his heart never had the eyesight to do aviation but is an aviation enthusiast like and this movie half of it is a commercial for how efficient the Navy launches and lands planes (laughs) off aircraft carriers and so I, I mean he dug that part of it I of course dug the whole time travel bit and I'll be honest, even as a kid, I was always fascinated with the the idea of the grandfather paradox or the you know, go back in time. If you could go back in time and change something, would you? And if you did, what would be the ramifications thereof? And I mean, there's you know miles of books that have been printed in historical fiction about this some of which very similar to some of this john birmingham's got a series on them and i've read a couple and they're pretty good uh but i've always i've always been fascinated by this story and it's stuck with me it's been gosh it's probably been a decade since i watched it but i remember this movie so well because again the plot's not that thick um but it it's one that got put together and you load it up with a ton of character actors who can really pull it off and you get the actual Navy to loan you the Nimitz for a couple of months. I mean, (laughs) and, and a squadron, the greatest squadron of F-14s ever assembled. And maybe the, you know, the best fighter pilot squadron ever, the Jolly Rogers to, to shoot all your stuff for you in Key West. I mean, it's hard to miss for something like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, you could have cut all of the plot scenes out and just made it like, an hour long documentary on the Nimitz just with even no narration or anybody talking about it, just like showing them doing Navy things. And I, I was a hundred percent on board. I was never, I was never a big Navy kid, but uh, I do remember I had a toy like aircraft carrier, uh, not like the GI Joe one, but like a, a small, like I'm gesturing with my hands, like the size of a loaf of bread. Yeah. Like one of those round Italian loaves. Um, uh, and it had uh, little planes that were stuck on rings that you could take the plane off the ring and put it on the aircraft carrier and like launch because it had a work it had two working catapults. Holy cow, man! To, to launch the planes, yeah, I'll have to find this thing somewhere. And it was great. And I, I had that a lot as a kid. And I remember like f- Top Gun and stuff. But this one somehow escaped my my notice.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is definitely a commercial for how cool the F-14 is. And, I mean, they really were just putting them into service. Like the guys, it's funny, the only behind-the-scenes stuff I can find on this is basically the pilots that were in it talking about it. And those guys were like, yeah, we were literally peeling the stickers off of the F-14s as we are getting ready to fly them for this movie. They had just <laughs> got them. And and it's what's wild to think about, and you meet these guys, and you hear them talking, they just talk like, You know, it's just some guy that drove a school bus is the way they act about it. They were like considered the greatest set of pilots the Navy had at the time. And and so literally the best pilots in the world. And they're just shooting a dumb movie. You know, they 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 all read the script and they're like, yeah, you know, they they all got mad at the ending that we'll talk about in a little bit. But they they all were like, yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I'm gonna go and shoot a movie, which I had to go. They all talked about how they had to go convince their wives, like to you know, five weeks of my home time is not going to be spent in Key West doing aerial footage for this movie that I'm in. They said, but nobody complained when they were paying us 150 bucks a day as you know extras in the movie or whatever, said cash. And he said, which was more than any of us were making at the time. And he said, so yeah. Nobody complained about that when it was over. So it that's funny to think about though. Uh, but me, like I say, man, this one had the kind of stuff that again, my dad would have been into with the, the actors that were in it. And I, I, you know, I know all of these people from a lot of other things they've done, except James Ferrantino, whose face looks familiar, but, I don't know all of his filmography, but Catherine Ross, obviously the Stepford wives, among other things, which I mean, is a really celebrated actress, Ron O'Neill and Charles Durning. I know from when a stranger calls, which you can go listen to the episode of in our archives. Now, Ann and I did that one years ago, uh, but they were in that one together. And then soon take. Oh, of course. Well, I mean, he's been in so many things. He just died a few years ago, but uh, he uh, just a great actor and, and uh, all kinds of martial arts movies, action movies, but I will always remember him as the super bad guy in mission and action Two, uh, which, it's a, a horrible movie but he's good in it I'll, I'll say at least in a Hamey performance as a Vietnamese torture person
0: yeah he he's the the best part of that movie that's for sure yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you're talking about how bad that movie is off air <laughs> yeah
1: sorry uh, Chuck that's not not one of your better ones
0: <laughs> I, I, I think Chuck's aware of that yeah but yeah this movie has a lot of of noteworthy people I mean just start off with you know Midway himself Kirk Douglas and you know Apocalypse Sheen and and that's before you get to like all the character actors who fill out the rest of the non-navy personnel cast yeah so it's 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 clear that that clout was involved with this in some way if only because the navy cooperated excessively like not even this isn't even just the navy cooperated this is the navy like bending over backwards to make a recruitment film. And yeah. one, of the, one of the little tidbits I learned was that in, in 1980, there were a bunch of posters for this movie that were put up in Navy recruiting stations. Mm-hmm. So that was a fun, uh, fun factoid. Uh, but I don't think it had quite the bump that uh, Top Gun had.
1: No, it it didn't have that one, but you had you had Victor Kemper, who's the uh, the director of photography in this, and he worked on a billion things for years. Just a great cinematographer. You had uh, David Jones that did all of the second unit stuff, and he's basically responsible for all the aerial stuff that you see, because they were working on a tight budget, and as the pilot said, they were all blown away by how good of a helicopter pilot he really was. So you, you had that going on, and I mean, they let them have access to the Nimitz. Um, most of everything you see shot inside the ship, they were in a dry dock, actually, so they, they got them you know, to do a couple of turns around Pearl to get some ocean shots, but most of the time when they're on the boat, it's not real really moving at the time but they i mean the 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 bulk of the people you see on that boat are the real people that worked on it and i I always remember hearing the the Admiral of the Navy uh, signed off on this because like you said, he thought it would be a good recruitment letter. And when he finally saw it, he was like, Holy cow, this is like the best thing we've got. And it did bump their numbers because people wanted to do this. (laughs) I think people don't appreciate the fact that like an aircraft carrier at sea is a floating airbase, which is a huge thing to pull off all the logistics and the people. And it's mostly staffed by 18 to 20 year olds. (laughs) And the fact that it runs as efficiently as it does. And that's the one thing this movie really wanted to show was how efficient all all this stuff you know runs and does, and it's all by the book and all that. Um, th- that I so one of the things that makes an impression on you for sure, especially as a kid, thinking, "Oh man, how do you do all that?" And you know, then you, you hear all the stories through the years about guys that fly planes and how they land them on carriers and what that's like and everything. It's that's neat to hear, and then you you double on the sci-fi you know problem in the movie of let's take the baddest warship we've got, which at the time would have been the Nimitz. And put it up against the Japanese fleet a day before Pearl Harbor. What would happen? You know, it's it's the fantasy booking of all time.
0: Yeah, and and if I remember correctly, the Nimitz was like the first nuclear powered aircraft carrier, too. Correct. So, and those are basically the core of uh, the most important thing we've gotten in the Navy that isn't a submarine right now.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, they are they are the support. You know,
0: even to this day, those are still like crucially important. Crucially important pieces of equipment uh, for forward staging and such.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, they, they are not only uh, the, the air base, but they transport, you know, legions of troops everywhere. You know, your SEAL teams yeah, a lot of times come off of those boats and they are, they come off the, the cruisers that are nearby and stuff. So, I mean, yeah, it's, um, it's tight quarters. There's a lot of people and it, what they do is an amazing work. So hats off to, you know, the, the men and women that run those aircraft carriers, but back to this movie, um, I, you know, again, I have always had a lot of questions about this one, and so I'm glad to have somebody who's first time watching it here with me with this, because I didn't know that till you said that on the show here. I'm really curious to hear how you perceive some of the stuff that goes down in this. We'll, we'll have a good discussion about it, but, Ron, why don't you tell folks what the final countdown's all about? It's 1980, and the
0: USS Nimitz is departing Pearl Harbor for patrol exercises in the Pacific Ocean. On board is civilian Warren Lasky, played by Sheen, On the orders of his secretive employer, Richard Tideman, whose company had a hand in building the Nimitz, and he wants Lasky to evaluate the crew's efficiency. While Lasky is greeted by Captain Matt Yellent, he rubs the commander of the air group, Dick Owens, the wrong way. When Lasky snoops on his research about the attack on Pearl Harbor, which forced the United States to join World War II. While at sea, a mysterious storm arises and transport the Nimitz and crew back to December 6th, 1941 the day before the day that will live in infamy. The Nimitz rescues Senator Samuel Chapman and his administrative liaison, Laurel, after their yacht is attacked by patrolling Japanese reconnaissance planes. According to history, Chapman disappeared prior to the attack, and had he survived, would have likely been FDR's running mate in 1944 instead of Harry Truman. As Yelland, Owens, and Lasky try to grapple with whether or not they should intervene in the coming attack, they have to placate the senator, who is confused by the advanced military might he sees around him. Deciding ultimately to thwart the attack, Yellen orders Owens to take Laurel and Chapman to a deserted island with supplies that will keep them alive until the battle is over. Chapman, angry he was not taken back to Pearl Harbor as he requested, fires a flare gun aboard the helicopter, dropping them off, destroying the craft, killing him and the crew, while stranding Laurel and Owens on the island. Yellen and crew see the mysterious storm reappear, and decide to call off their attack as they are transported back to 1980. After returning to base and attempting to explain what happened, Lasky departs to the Nimitz after exchanging pleasantries with Yelland. Lasky is picked up by Mr. and Mrs. Tideman, who are revealed to be a much older Commander Owen and Laurel. Lasky climbs into their limousine, where he has promised there is much to talk about. As credits roll,
1: so I just want to start with this. You know, why we're even doing this in January of 2021, well, we just finished three time travel paradox movies. Brian and I did the Back to the Future series, and I thought I need a I need a time travel paradox movie to go along with that. Well, okay, there's like a million. So if you Google that, throw that in your machine, you'll get a you know a good response back. But I thought, okay, this one's earlier in the decade, but it's one that stuck with me. So I wanted to throw that out, but I want to ask you like time travel paradox movies in general. What do you think of them? Any off the top of your head that you always like, what is it about them that is intriguing?
0: Well, like most people who had HBO in the mid nineties, I watched the Philadelphia experiment two a million times. Yes. So that is one of the time travel paradox movies that sticks with me. Of course, there's obviously time cop. Everybody knows that one. Um, but specifically, it seems like Philadelphia Experiment and Philadelphia Experiment 2 were, like, designed to be part of a trilogy with the final countdown because they all concern, like, uh, military technology that gets sent back in time to World War II to change the balance of history, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and you've got more recent examples like Looper. That's one that everybody knows hmm. in the scene. That's, that's one that, you know, creates it. And I, I don't know. I just, I love that. And when you marry that with historical fiction, um, I'm just intrigued. It's being kind of a bit of a history nut anyway. And. I, I often have said, and I've even said on this show before that I feel like World War II just has been overdone by Hollywood in a lot of ways. Um, but I, it hasn't stopped me from watching a lot of those movies either. And I do think that period of time, because the world became the world between World War One and World War II advanced slowly, but it was right about the same place. For the most part, after World War II, the world became a very different place you know, than the one that you know, basically gave birth to us. You know, it, it changed everything. And so, when people want to go back and try to you know flip the script on World War II, it's just it's there's right for it because you've got two fronts where that could happen. Usually, it's can you kill Hitler or so, or let him survive? You're know, right, or it's intervene somehow in the Japanese Pacific front. Uh, and I don't know. I, I've always thought that was just a cool thing. And I, I don't know. Again, historical fiction is it is a guilty pleasure of the genre of sub fiction that I like. I mean, it's just something I've I've read a lot of. You ever done any historical fiction?
0: Um, I mean, I think everybody's read at least one Harry Turtledove.
1: Right. Yeah, that was the name I was gonna go to next. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but um, uh, other than that, it, it tends not to be my my bag. I tend to go more towards like hard sci fi. Yeah, at least these days.
1: Yeah, and I can I can understand that. This is definitely not hard on the sci-fi as they bother to explain absolutely none of it um, at all, which maybe is the right impetus. I don't know. We'll get to it, but we've talked about the U.S. Navy's involvement in this. Obviously, unlimited access uh, let them see a lot of stuff that you wouldn't have seen any other place except. You know, if there was a an ambitious news crew at the time, and I try to put myself in the mindset, and I was alive, but I wasn't paying attention to these. What it was like in 1980, you know, for us, we were just a you know, very few years after Vietnam. Reagan wasn't in office yet. Um, we, you know, it was a different time in America. We were kind of coming out of a tough recession, you know, all this stuff, but we had all this the we had the leftover of what Eisenhower coined the phrase of as the military industrial complex and in a lot of ways this movie is very much a i don't know if it's a criticism of or it's a commentary on the military industrial complex because the central crux of it is the guy who is whose company is most responsible for creating the nimitz is also on the nimitz at this time and so at some point he has to go back in time to leave himself there so that he can create the company that will create this. But if his ship intervenes, it will stop the thing that really put the military industrial complex into high gear. So you see what I mean? Like I feel like Ron O'Neill, like you start losing your mind when you start thinking about this stuff.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I just need to give myself a comb over and yell uh, (laughs) (laughs) about the, uh, the, the putting the paradox of having to, uh, cal reese yourself right yeah so to speak because that's that's basically what it is right he's got to go he's got to go he's got to be born and he has to go back in time to ensure that he can build the nimitz basically
1: yeah but he's got to have no ties to anybody so when he disappears (laughs) nobody says anything in 1980 about it so does that mean like he killed
0: his parents at some point
1: I, that's what I'm. I, yeah, I got a lot of questions. <laughs> like, did he just sort of move away from home? And I mean, if you look at the guy, the actor at the time is 42. He's playing somebody that's probably supposed to be about 35. So you could justify in your head that, like, okay, when that guy turned 18 and 19, you know, 62 or whatever, instead of. You know, tuning in and dropping out and dropping acid, he decided I'm going to join the Navy. And maybe his parents were hippies and, and he left him at Woodstock and he, he joined the Navy. I don't know. Uh, but it's also like the machinations of it to become the commander of the air group aboard the Nimitz, the lead. Ship in the navy, that's not a job you apply for on LinkedIn, like you, you that you like gotta be really you gotta be the best to do that, and that's pretty amazing to think about. If you start applying that kind of logic to it, like I don't know, the threads get a little bare uh, on some of it. Because it, the other question I have for you, was we'll to ask now? Because they ask it in the movie, and the way it plays off is ambiguous to me. Do you think Lasky knows, like, is he in on it at some point? Because I it's almost like it doesn't make any sense why he's there.
0: Uh, I think he's there um, as as part of his role as a uh, defense contracting weasel, because I think <laughs> this is still some sort of like a. Sh- it still seems like it's a shakedown cruise for the Nimitz, yeah. so he's on board to make sure that nothing goes wrong and to, you know, uh, pick brains and that kind of stuff. I mean it's probably a little bit more than a shakedown cruise, but it it's early. So I think maybe he's he's there because Tideman needs him
1: to be there. He does. Like in a lot of ways, if if Lasky's not there, a lot of things that happen in the movie won't won't unfold the way that they that they need to for everything to work out. Because that's the 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 mysterious thing. And I didn't I've never noticed this before until this this watching of it. But in the opening scene when they're running, you know, everybody around and you're seeing all this stuff and you see this limousine start pulling up to the Nimitz, it's the one that picks up Lasky at the end of the movie, but it's Tidman's limousine. And I, I'm like, okay. So he if if we're to believe the logic of the movie, he's already there. So his old self is doing Marty McFly. He's on the stage watching himself play Johnny Be Good. He's there to make sure that Lasky gets on board because he's got to have some reason for there to be a voice in the room that's non-military to to have those conversations. Because if, if the, the, that's one thing Lasky does in this is he brings up things that the non-military, that the military guys don't think about. Right, like their job is, and Yellen even says it at some point. Our job is to defend this, you know, nation in the you know past, present, future, and whatever else comes, you know. And so, if he's not there to force some of those conversations, and to just basically be the fly on the wall that nobody knows what to do with, you could see that okay, the military is just going to go and you know do what it does, right?
0: Yeah, uh, that that makes sense. I- I can't help but wonder if maybe reading the manuscript, especially the second time, is what starts to give Lasky clues that this this may be, you know, this is not, this Owen is not who I think he is.
1: Yeah, there's obviously something more to him because he's fascinated by, when you meet him, the first time we really meet him in a scene is Martin Sheen has been taken to his quarters and he's next door. He basically shares a, a block in the ship with uh, commander Owens. And he knows the doors are locked. And so being a big snoop and a corporate weasel, he walks right in and starts reading everything of the dude's desk. And it's like a memorial to the attack on Pearl Harbor. And you can, you read that initially as this guy's a historian. And so he's writing, he's writing a book about Pearl Harbor. Cause I mean, you know, it's not an um, Spar stretch to think about a lot. A lot of things people don't realize about like leaders in the Navy, like. Above being, you know, warriors and all this stuff, they're really academics in a lot of ways. Like, if you're the captain of a boat, you're pretty much a university president and you have to deal with all the deans, which are your department heads, your CAG, all these other people. So, your CAG would be your provost in a lot of ways, or your vice president in a lot of ways, on an aircraft carrier, because that's what you're there for, it's his stuff. And so, for him to be obsessed with like the attack on Pearl Harbor is not a far stretch, but when you know the secret of the movie, you realize he's doing all that so that he can make sure that they do everything right to get back to the the point. Right. But my question is, is, is there ever a point where the intention is they need to intervene or is it that they, they don't need to enter? He doesn't need them to intervene. He just needs them to drop him off on that Island so that he can grow up to become Richard Titan. Uh,
0: yeah. I think the goal was never to intervene in Pearl Harbor and changed the course of history. I think the point was always get himself on that Island and knowing military people being a military person, he knows that they would feel compelled to intervene, but that he would also have Lasky on board to kind of support the idea of dumping off the civilians, so to speak.
1: Right. Except for Lasky, which we'll get to in a a minute, but we'll, we'll talk about how that all works out because, um, there's a definite moment where, where Owen looks at him and it's almost like he's telling him, you don't need to get on this helicopter with me because he's going to at one point, but he's not. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. I, I do like the idea though of, of how they play all this off. I mean, the first 15 minutes of this are nothing but how efficient a carrier runs and how they launch all these aircraft and. I don't know i I really like that though I gotta say for a movie made in nineteen seventy nine basically they they did some great cinematography and it's all punctuated by john scott's score I mean it's like this military da, da, da triumphant score, but then it can devolve into the eighties paranoia Unsolved Mysteries score at the same time. It's kind of neat. The little little minor key thing that it's it's a ripoff of The Exorcist and twenty other things. is so it's so cool and it's so different than the ba ba da music.
0: Yeah, I really I really got a kick out of the uh, the combination of the sci fi score with the triumphant military march score. Uh, if this movie does has done nothing else, it is it makes the Navy look amazing.
1: It does make it look very interesting, but without over glamorizing what they do, like when they go to the, the whole general quarters, bit, and this is after the storm hits a- and everything. It, that was an actual drill. And the guys said that wasn't just for the movie. They were trying to you know, time us on how fast we could load up everything. You know, they run that all the time because when a wartime scenario hits, they got to be able to do it for real. So it's that's constantly what you do when you're on a boat in the Navy. My dad just talked about that. He said, you're either doing your job, you're learning about your job, or you're doing a drill. And then when you're not doing that, you're either eating or sleeping. He said, that's just all you do all day because you don't have anything else to do. There's nowhere to go. That's what you do all day. And you just drill and drill until you get it down so perfect that it'll work in, in the time when you need it, which is cool to see. What do you make of the storm and the way that they play that off and pull that out? Where does that come from, Ron? How does, what's your reading of how that happens?
0: I kind of feel like Tideman knows when this storm happened and when the storm happens to leave him. And I kind of feel like that Owen has this mental ticking clock as they go through the, the scenarios So I kind of feel like he knows it's going to happen and and he wants to make sure that he gets on the, you know, everything happens the way it needs to. Uh, but I also feel that this, that them not explaining how they ended up going backwards in time, other than to say it was the weirdest storm we've ever gone through is probably a smart decision on their part because there's not going to be a good answer. There's not going to be a satisfying answer. Uh, I don't think that that people would be really are going to be thrilled by the the shoulder shrug. Eh, It just happened. Go with it, man. Answer. But I think that they would people would be even madder if they gave them some sort of flimsy techno babble. Like, you know, the nuclear engines on board, uh, some wires crossed and uh, I don't know, somebody dropped some radium on a clock and and, you know, somebody was bitten by, you know, a radioactive time traveler, and and this just happened.
1: (laughs) Can I give you my personal theory on it? This is not in the movie. This is Jay just writing things together. But if Tideman Industries is this all-powerful defense contractor, multi-level national company, whatever, who's to say they're not the forerunners of CERN and invented the Hadron Collider and created it? And so he creates his own existence because let's just solve the grandfather paradox problem right now that Lasky lays out. It's like, well, if you go back in time and meet your grandfather before he has any children or anything and you kill him, how can you ever be born to go back in time to meet your grandfather? And the truth of the matter is, is if you go back in time and you do something like that, if you were to go back forward to time, you've now done the doc Brown alternate timeline, alternate 1985 where Donald Trump runs Hill Valley or what the hell ever. And that's what, this is the same thing. So Tyman at some point becomes aware or through that technology, like, holy cow, we created a wormhole out in the Pacific Ocean. And it takes things back to 1941. And so he realizes like, okay, so that now I, I can set this all into motion. So what we're seeing is not maybe not the real 1980. It's the alternate 1980 that has been created by Tiedemann Industries, uh, you know, playing with the God particle or some Dan Brown nonsense.
0: That makes sense to me. That that's as good an explanation as anything that the movie came up with because they didn't.
1: Yeah, yeah, they they didn't
0: care to. They didn't care to try.
1: (laughs) And you're right. It's probably wise that they don't because you can sit there and pick holes in that if if they lay the theory out. But they do spend enough time on Lasky's grandfather paradox, and he gets that. I mean, Sheen's best scene, really, when he gets to lay all that stuff out. And I, I don't know. you see Martin Sheen now and he's doing commercials for like how to get, you know, money off your your senior drugs and stuff like that. And yeah, you know, whatever. Um, And that's fine. But you kind of forget like how good of an actor this guy really is. And the way he can just chew through dialogue like that. It, it was pretty amazing. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think of his whole grandfather paradox? Do you think he starts to bring some of these Navy guys around on it? Because some of them seem like it's just total bullshit.
0: I think that, when you when you when, you're, when you spend that much time at sea, you you have the opportunity to do a lot of reading. And I guarantee you, yeah. there's some people on that boat who are reading, you know, Bradbury. I mean, it's a it's a it's a nuclear powered aircraft carrier. There there are plenty of nerds yeah. in the nuclear division who are passing <laughs> around like beat up copies of H.G. Wells or whatever. Oh yeah. So there's some definitely some faces on board, especially among the technical staff when they cut the when they do the whole big meeting and they broadcast it throughout the ship, there's definitely some of the, the mop pushers that are like, that makes a perfect sense. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. go invest in some GE stock or something.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. They're trying to figure out how to, how to make a bucket. I didn't find that nobody made, made that joke or whatever. I, I, we haven't talked about him here, but man, I love Kirk Douglas in this. And I think because I like him because he's not playing big Spartacus, Kirk Douglas or anything. He's, playing what a navy captain would be he stays calm keeps his men calm tries to work through the problem i mean i i love it and i i think it's in a lot of ways he's not in a lot of the movie but every time he's there he's just such a there's just such a presence of him on the screen he's not a big dude at all that's that's the thing about like Watching him, particularly when he's and we talk about him like he's old in this movie, he lived another forty something years, to, you know, to after it. But this guy has such a presence that you can see he commands respect, and I don't—I really dug it. I really enjoyed Kirk Douglas
0: underplaying it a little bit, doing it more. I mean, he—he he still had a few moments where he got to be, you know, Kirk Douglas let's go shoot the Japanese and whatnot. (laughs) (laughs) But, but at the same time, it's like, it was, it it was a very good, like it leaned really well on his, uh, his look his not necessarily his persona, but the the kind of gravitas that comes with his age and his stature uh, as a performer. And even as a person by this point,
1: I mean, yeah, he was already a legend at, at this point, And he's just done everything at this point. And it's almost, I, you almost want to say like, that's oh, kind of a nothing role for a guy like that. But, you know, its it was perfect. He was perfect casting, in my opinion. I, th- I thought he was fabulous in this. And I thought he was a good counter to Sheen in the scenes that they had together. Because like you say, Sheen is definitely like the corporate weasel uh, all the way, whether he's in on it or not or becomes aware of it or not, it, it, you, know, you, can, you can play that either way. But I thought he was a good counter to that. And then with all of this Do so you think well.
0: Douglas played a good Navy captain because he was a a, a Navy uh, – was it because he was in the Navy in World War II?
1: I think he, he would probably have a lot more insight into it than the rest of them. And I think, too, he had access to the – the leadership on the ship and leadership in the Navy. And it probably got his door open a little bit more, not just because of the Hollywood connection, but he was one Mm of them, you know, I mean, that's a thing in the military. Like if you've actually served, like you, you you get an extra cup of coffee, you can come to sit and talk to me, you know, and, and, I, I mean, to hear again, to hear those pilots talk about it, they were just in awe of him and he, they said he couldn't have been a nicer person. It's like, he was just very cool and he wanted to know about their job and like he wanted to take the tour on the plane and he got to sit in the pilot seat. And he thought it was the coolest thing
0: ever. Yeah. You know? Especially oh for guys. a guy who, you know, fought in the Pacific theater. Yeah. That's, or uh, was he in the Pacific or the, uh, anyway, it doesn't really matter. But a guy who fought in world war two. Yeah. To get a chance to, Go from you know being on an anti-submarine boat in 1941 to see what things were like you know 40ish years later in the most advanced ship on the planet. That that's gonna be that's gonna be a cool experience for him because he can definitely and I guarantee you he definitely had some stories because I mean he got a medical discharge because he was injured in in the in the war there was plenty of stories to go around. Uh,
1: yeah. And, and that had to be
0: a really cool experience for both the guys in the ship and for him. Cause I enjoyed just seeing the ship in action and I have no connection to the Navy.
1: Oh no, it was, it's so cool to watch. And again, to watch him in command of all that and just kind of keep everything together. And I love it. He constantly reminds people like, Hey, we're just going to work the problem a piece at a time. We're going to do this. I'm going to bring my people together. Everybody right now, let's talk. And he's not doing the, you know, pound his fist on the table kind of routine. It's more of the, what are you really saying? What are you talking about? How is how is that possible? What does that look like? And obviously he has a great relationship with CAG, his commander of Reserve Group, Owen, you know, James Fiorentino. And they clearly have been together through a lot. And he trusts him. He trusts his opinion over a lot of other things, which is kind of, that is a little funny. Like you would listen to the CAG a lot if you're the captain, but you, you have like an XO on the boat. You have, you know on the ship. You've got other, you know, lead command, like Lieutenant Commander Kaufman actually would be somebody who might, you know, get consulted on a few things as it were. But yeah, I, I, I love the, the interaction of all the Navy people and the actors and playing the Navy people here. Ron O'Neill's great. And I mentioned him before. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, because we haven't mentioned him much except just from the intro there. Charles Derning and Catherine Ross, who are the senator and his administrative liaison, um, out at, out in Pearl on a, on a yacht, taking a pleasure cruise with, I guess, his friend, the ever horny Charlie and a couple of other drunk people and a servant and you know, all kinds of other stuff. And I, I like the way that we introduce him in here because I mean, I like I have for years, I think one of the first things I learned how to Google honestly was like, is Sam Chapman like a real person? Like I really wanted to know, like did they take that out of history and, you know, try to fudge that. And this is all made up apparently, but I love the way that they sew that in there, that this was the guy that was going to be FDR's running mate. And he's over the, he's over the defense department, you know, uh, or not the defense department, but the, the Senate committee on defense Appropriations. So he would know about stuff. And the way he, they introduce it is the F-14s do a flyby on him. <laughs> <laughs> of course, in 1941, you had to blow somebody's mind. Like, what the hell is that? You know. And then here come the the recon Japanese zeros that strafe the boat and, and the whole bit. But I don't know. I I thought Durning though, he's always such a cool presence in these movies. Whether he's playing a cop or a principal or your drunk grandfather or whatever, or a senator who's super power hungry and he's definitely hitting on his administrative assistant who's blowing him off at every turn. I I thought he had such a a cool character because in a lot of ways he gets to be the audience, right? Like the audience character in these kind of movies, usually is introduced a lot sooner and you'd think that's supposed to be Lasky, but it's really not. It's Charles Durning's character. Yeah. They do a good
0: job of, of misdirecting too, from who's supposed to be the audience surrogate because you've got Lasky and he's kind of our eyes in the beginning, but like the, the person who I, i most identified with in terms of like their reaction to the Nimitz was uh, Chapman. Cause I mean, just like you said, just the general quarters drill alone was like organized chaos. It was, it was incredible to like watch it play out and to see, you know, what the jobs actually are and what each person does and how, despite the fact that it looks like it's just a mosh pit, everybody knows where they're going and where they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to do when they get there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Chapman is blown away by this. First off, Chester Nimitz is in the Navy. He knows him. So, that, you know, why do we name a boat after him? And, you know, he, he is blown away by all of this. But I got to say the, the aerial photography again, when they do the, when SunTeko and his partner do the, the strafing runs on the yacht, at, uh, that was all done in Key West, looks amazing. Um, and, uh, just uh, such, a, such a cool set of scenes. And it, it makes total sense. Like why they would do it is they saw us we can't let them, you know, say anything. They might tell somebody. So they're going ahead and blow them away. And I love that they weave that into the story. Like Senator Chapman disappeared mysteriously before Pearl Harbor and how that story in 1941 would have just gotten lost in the news on top of the Pearl Harbor attack. Right. That's what makes it kind of fun.
0: Yeah, that was a really fun wrinkle and a good. It, it was a good way to um, kind of address some of the the paradox issues by having history change, and and I actually I really liked the the way they resolved it um, towards the end of the movie. But we'll get there. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, we'll talk about how how Chapman fulfills his destiny, if you will, uh, at the, at the end of this thing. But yeah, I, I like him. I like Catherine Ross too. I you know I know she's she's an interesting actress to think about, you know, and you've seen her in so much stuff and she just has such a, such a presence. And I think she's really associated with like the 1970s in a lot of ways. I think by the eighties and stuff, she had just started doing bit parts and things, but I love that they, they wrote a woman character has her own agency. She's very much in charge of her own thoughts. She rebuffs the, playful, but inappropriate advances of her boss. And because she has her eyes set on a career path that you didn't think of for women back then, but certainly a lot of them had them. And I I thought it was neat for a movie in 1980 to highlight something like that.
0: Yeah. It's not the kind of thing we would think about. Um, And I, I think a lot of her forward looking nature versus Chapman is why she seems to adapt a little bit better to being on a boat from the future than, than he does. He's used to pushing his, he's used to throwing his considerable Charles Durning weight around. He's used to, to getting what he wants. He's used to getting his way. He's used to pushing people around. I mean, he's basically from my understanding was he was going to basically bully himself into the vice president spot. Yeah. Um, and you know, He's He's the system. She's used to working within the system, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so I, I I thought that was a really fun uh, moment, and it and it kind of helps. It, it helps that character, I think, be a little more a uh, little more interesting, and to be a different sort of audience surrogate uh, character, so to speak.
1: Yeah. And she also is absolutely in love with the friggin' Lassie dog that she has named Charlie uh, that runs around the ship unabated yeah, <laughs> at all times. Who, I'm not-
0: who wouldn't like that dog? That dog was great.
1: That dog was was very pretty. That was a very cute set of dogs that they had. I think it was like a trio of them that they wrangled for the movie. But but no, I I did get a, a kick out of the dog, and I thought that was neat that they tied that around. I almost feel like, though, at the very end, when the dog runs to the limo, when you hear her voice go, Charlie, I'm like, oh, you, that, like you didn't need to blow that. Like the moment was when he looks in there and then there are their faces in old age makeup. I kind of wish they hadn't done that. That feels like studio made them do that. And, I don't know. I hated that moment. I'd I think always it, have.
0: I think it would have been better if the dog just ran and jumped right into the car. Because you've yeah. I mean, seen this dog running wild all over the aircraft carrier, or, or at least disappearing inconveniently um, when the Navy was like, no, we can't have this dog hanging out here all day.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it was like, keep the dog in this area only, please. Yeah, no, I, I would have liked that better too. It's, it reminded me though of something that called, but years later, ABC had a show called revenge that was on for three or four seasons. And spoiler alert, one of the characters in there has this dog that she has to give up when she's young for reasons that are the reasons of the show. And she runs into it again, later as an adult. And it seems to be overly enamored with her and nobody could ever figure out why. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) because it was her dog like the dog remembers 13 years later but anyway sidebar on revenge good show by the way i recommend uh it's worth watching if you're into serialized soap opera television Good Madeline Stowe and Henry Cherney stuff too, by the way, and that's so hmm. good character actors, but uh, I digress as they say. So yeah, we've, we've got Laurel, we've got Chapman the, the whole shootout happens. I love the, the way the F-14s like are screwing around with the Japanese heroes and they keep begging for permission to fire. <laughs> and they finally like, look, they just blew the yacht up. Can we please blow these people out of the sky? And they do. And it's, it's a matter of moments and it's mostly just like good aerial stunts and things like that. But I, I love how, it they They leave no doubt in mind uh, that it, yes, if our superior technology went up against the old you know more primitive technology, it would not be a contest because that 's usually the other way around in movies right it 's like oh the, the old stuff'll it, take you out right yeah because that was part of you know the the hurt of Vietnam was we had all the superior might but we couldn 't beat these people right we couldn 't beat that army. And, or you know, at least that's the way history tells it, right? And this seems like on the other side of it, it's like, well, actually, if the F-14s went up against that Japanese squadron, three of them probably could have taken out the whole fleet.
0: Yeah, they, were, they weren't exactly going up against the Vietnamese military, the, which did have a, a significant support from both China and the USSR. Sure. They were going up against, you know, propeller-driven planes with, yeah. you know, nose-mounted, 50 caliber machine guns versus, you know, 20 millimeter death bringers.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it's the first one that gets shot down. It's, it's just the quick on the, on the uh, gun. And he probably put about 60 rounds right through the tail of that thing. And it crashes that soon O's, uh, uh, um, soon plane. to hear him tell about it. Like they were going to use models for all this stuff. And the Navy guys were like, no, we have a firing range down here you can you can you know shoot us shooting the stuff, so the gunshot and the missile shot are real shots they They all talked about like how fake it all looks in top gun and stuff like that like no, this is what a real one looks like, and they shot a drone pl- two drone planes with the the actual stuff, which I thought was pretty cool.
0: yeah, it looks great. it looks awesome, just like just the footage of them loading armaments onto the to, to the tomcats was like. I I was 200 percent on board for that part of the movie because I was like, I've always kind of wondered how they mount those things onto these, you know, how how you stick a missile under the wing of an airplane and it doesn't just fall off until you're ready for it to fall off. That yeah. kind of thing.
1: It's it's a lot of uh, bolts. About six dudes picking it up and <laughs> clamping it in and hooking the little wire like you're hooking your trailer to your truck, because <laughs> that lets the clamp know let go, and then and that fires the missile. It's it's pretty cool to watch. Good aerial stuff there uh, from the yeah Jolly the Rogers,
0: um that dive, uh where the the tomcat comes in at that basically a ninety degree angle and then flattens out right before it hits the water. That was amazing
1: the guy that did that was considered to be the best pilot in the squadron. So literally the best pilot in the world at that point. And he says, I didn't really get that close to the water. He said, the, the cinematographer did a smart thing. He said, I did a deep dive and I pulled up at about a hundred feet, which is fine. He said, we could do that. He said, they just did a zoom in with the camera. So it looked like the water got a lot closer. Then they brought my wife into the sound booth and showed her Footage of me doing that, recorded her scream and matched it, overlaid it with a jet engine, and that's what you hear is his wife freaking out on top of the jet engine screaming. At the end of it, oh, that is a great story.
0: <laughs> that is awesome. That that's spectacular. Uh, you you hit something when you when you complimented the sound design of this movie because it sounds great and it makes me wish I had like a good sound bar or uh, you know a good bass setup to just kind of rattle the floor. When those afterburners
1: kicked in, oh yeah, I mean they they did an excellent job capturing all that. I mean, that's the thing is this this movie again half of it, it really is a commercial for the Navy. You could cut all the narrative out and it's just a Navy commercial for forty five minutes. You could have Martin Sheen narrate it, you know, and tell everybody what's going on in it, uh, and it would work. But on when you layer on the story again, this is where things start to get really weird and interesting because they bring back Suntico. They've captured him because he his plane crash but he lived so they pick him up bring him back along with Chapman Laurel all these people and they're trying to tell them what's going on and I, I love how Chapman is like demanding the doctor like I don't want to see any shots give me the captain blah, 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 blah. and the guy like as cool and calm as ever Is like certainly wouldn't you like to have some clothes you know and just like calm down and he yells at uh, Kirk Douglas and Kirk Douglas is just like Okay, well, let's get you dressed and you can call Pearl Harbor and tell him that you're on a, you know, a 1980s aircraft and you, you're an aircraft carrier and you want to talk to the president. And I'd love that they let him do that because I think Yellen knows like they're never going to believe the guy. And sure enough, the, uh, the guy on the other end of the radio is incredibly disrespectful to the wonderful senator. Yeah,
0: which, which was the most authentic feeling part of the whole thing. Because, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it just seems, especially back then, uh, when the military wasn't quite as formalized as it is now that you could get some sass back, yeah. especially when you've got someone claiming to be a senator, claiming to be on board a spaceship from the future or whatever.
1: Yeah. You see Kirk Douglas over there kind of nodding, going like, so you had it your way. Now, do you want to listen to me and be reasonable, or you want to just keep yelling at people? And that that does turn Chapman around a little bit. And what what I love here is how – Um, they come around on all of this stuff, but before that, they either they're having one of their, uh, people translating in Japanese, what soon tech is telling them. And they're basically just verifying everything he knows, which is everything that anybody who wrote a history book or has read one knows about what's coming, what he's doing and slick move by him. He knocks out one of the Marines, grabs an M 16 and starts holding people hostage, and this is where the tension in the movie happens. I think Sheen did good in this too. And I love how they have the whole back and forth from the bridge and the translator talking to him in Japanese and basically everything that James Ferentino is laying out there about telling, you know what's coming tomorrow. You're supposed to go and do this. And this is what's going to happen at dawn. And you see his face. Suntico's face lights up like, holy shit. How do you know
0: Yeah, that? right down to By the, way, the names mm-hmm. of the aircraft carriers, the code word they're supposed to use, yeah.
1: everything yeah I mean all the stuff that you only know from the victors of history right that would to be able to write that, and at some point it dawns on him i I'm really out of place, and then you know the marines step in and, and take him out, so he's only in a couple of scenes, but it it's a it's a good piece of like subtle acting in a movie that you know doesn't really deserve it, but it it works as a good scene there. no, he's great
0: um, he's great in the the little scene that they have that that realization that washes over his face is really well done and uh I really enjoyed the uh the little suspenseful kind of action sequence that breaks out yeah. where it becomes kind of a standoff because you know that's um it's not that difficult to just blindly fire a gun down one of those passageways and just hit somebody cuz it is close quarters Yeah. All throughout this ship.
1: Yeah, everything is efficient. On the ship, because the ship is not there for your comfort. It is there to launch airplanes and land them and reload them. That is what it is there for. Your comfort is sacrificed because the plane must be comfortable. And so that's, I mean, that's how the Navy operates in a lot of ways. The equipment is more important than you. And that's what my dad used to say. And so, you know, and he's six six and on a destroyer. So you can only imagine, Whoa. right? But I, I love that scene, the way it works out. And I, I love the, the decision to intervene. You know, I wanted to ask you what you thought about that. Like, okay, we're going to go, we're going to load up and we're going to go and take on the thing. And this is where the pilots kind of waiting to, they're like, you know, we really wouldn't have had to load up that much. Like captain probably would have sent like a refueling plane and about four of us. And, you know, four Tom gets, could have taken out the whole bunch because we're going three times as fast as any of them could. He said the problem with you know the battle of Midway and how hard it was to sink all those battleships and stuff was because they couldn't get a good angle. They weren't, the planes weren't fast enough. He said, well, we wouldn't have had that problem like at all. As a matter of fact, they probably would have never seen us because we would have shot them and then turned around and refueled and shot them again. That would have been it. So it, I, I love the idea though that they're going to send all of that military mind. I mean, they launched the whole squadron right after them, and you think you're going to get to see it, and then the movie twists on us. And so, what what'd you think about all that?
0: I I was kind of hoping for more like zeros getting wasted by, you know, F-14s, <laughs> uh, just uh, on a pure. You know, enjoyment standpoint. I've had fa- I had family who fought in World War II in the Pacific Theater, uh, who had uh, unkind experiences with the Japanese. Let's say so. There was a little bit of that. Uh, let's go kick their teeth in kind of jingoistic thing. And plus, it's just fun to watch the F-14 just like swoop and dive and and watch the the wings fold out into like cruising position and to shoot the big guns and, and launch the missiles and all that cool stuff. I wanted to see at least a couple more missiles get launched and some more uh, drone planes get blown up, but you know, it, it, it was worth it just to watch them like load and launch. Cause that was fascinating.
1: Oh yeah. Just the, the timing of it and how they were getting them on and off and off. And what happens is of course, the storm comes back on the clip. So the Nimitz is trying to outrun the Hadron Collider Tideman storm, we'll call it at this point. And they, if you go with my theory and meanwhile, they're trying to figure out, you know, what else is going to, because the other thing that's happened is, and this is the the part of it that has it's stuck in my craw ever since I've been an adult to watch this movie and think about it, is the commander of the air group goes to drop off the civilians. Now it's his idea to do it, but You'd think at some point yelling it's like, "No, you need to hurry back because I need my best man." He might go like, "You know what? Just find one of your <laughs> lackeys to go do that." I need you to go ahead and suit up. Then been like Luke Skywalker going, "I got to go back and like, you know, feed the the blue milk cow before we go do the Death Star run." Like, no, you wouldn't allow that guy to do that. Like, it, but of course, it has to happen that way, right? Because he has to be dropped off on that island it's i don't know it's it's a whole it's a little knot that you have to tie together to figure out
0: there yeah that that part is kind of a strain because you think the 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 keg would be a little bit more important than to just drop off some guy but i don't may maybe it was an attempt however misguided to avoid uh offending the senator maybe because you gave him someone who's got a little who is fairly important and who that they, they both have already been like spending time with, and also if you send the Pearl Harbor uh, specialist or the Pearl Harbor you know professor to Pearl Harbor, he can probably be more beneficial, and that leads into that kind of feeds the the lie you're telling uh, Charles Durning to get rid of him.
1: Well, yeah, and that's the that's what pisses him off is that they don't take him to pearl they take him to a small island off of pearl out of the way from where the you know in case any of them get through to pearl they won't be damaged in that and you brought it up before it's a great way for chapman to go out to fulfill his destiny the way he takes down the helicopter
0: yeah it didn't look great uh but because I was kind of hoping they would blow up a real helicopter, like a, yeah, no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't let them do that. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't have to be a new helicopter. I Just take it out to the dummy range and hit it with a missile. Uh, that's what I yeah. want. <laughs> just blow some stuff up in a way that I like. Uh, but you know, there's if enough, Cannon
1: uh, had made this movie, that would have done that. That would have been if there Cannon had, been a lot of gasoline involved. Yeah, if
0: Cannon had made this movie, they would have just stuffed some dynamite into a model <laughs> into a remote control
1: plane. Yeah, blown it up in the Philippines. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. But no, but Ch- Chapman grabs a flare gun, we should say, and gets in a fight on the plane. And I, what I love about it is that the guys fighting him are trying to point his arm out the window because they know he's about to pull the trigger. Like, if he fires that thing in here, we are screwed. That, I mean, those helicopters are flying gas cans. They really are. And you do that, it's over quick. And it was, and that's, it's wild because there's a moment though where, where uh, Owen is hanging on to the helicopter and he's like getting up and he, there's a look on his face and I don't know if Farentino just did this or if Taylor directed him to do it, but he gets this look on his face like, oh, wait a minute, I got to get off of this thing. And so he drops and they're not very far up. So it's like he, he gave up real quick on that, but it's almost like he knows he's got to get off of that thing because Chapman's about to die and he can't die with him. Right.
0: Yeah, and as I was watching this, I said to my wife, I said, he either needs to climb up or needs to let go pretty quickly because this is bad. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, he lets go and the helicopter blows up. But, yeah, uh, it does kind of seem like he got caught up in a moment a little bit, if it is indeed a plan.
1: Yeah. Well, you said something I want to ask you. Like, had you figured out already that one of these people was going to come back at the end? Because I didn't see that coming at all. The first time I saw this movie, it blew my mind. No, uh,
0: that that completely, I completely missed that one. I wasn't expecting that at all. But I would also missed the limousine pull up in the beginning. I guess because I wasn't paying close enough attention, or I was too busy looking at the aircraft carrier to, to care about the suits.
1: And you're exactly right to do that. I think that's why it's there. That's why this movie is sort of interesting on a rewatch is you you try to go back through it. It's the same with that I talked about in the back of the future reviews if you after you know how it happens, can you go back and try to figure out like oh, that's when they do this and do this to get to this point point. and i we talked about it, Brian and I did on the at the end of that first movie at some point after Marty travels back the first first one travels back from 1950 to 1985. That 1955 Doc Brown now has to live the next 30 years of his life to get back to that point in 1985. He can't do anything different, even though he doesn't know what those things are. He's got to figure out how to do it. It, it, You really really twist your mind around with that. Uh,
0: That leads me to like a joke I made when we were getting to the end of the movie when he was introduced as Mr. Tideman. I was like, yeah, hi, this is Mr. Tideman. He's the guy who invented Tide detergent. (laughs) Uh... (laughs) I, was, I mean,
1: you, you got to build that military empire somehow. Well,
0: and then I then I went on a whole running joke. It's like, yeah, you know, um, so Tideman Industries, we own, uh, you know, Apple computers. That was me. You know, yeah. Microsoft, that was also me.
1: So, so what you're saying is Commander Owen becomes Forrest Gump. No, so what I'm saying <laughs> is com- all
0: that Commander knowledge. Owen becomes like. The Wayland Utani Corporation.
1: Yeah, well, that's a better. <laughs> yeah, th- that's a better option. It's the, like, yeah, uh,
0: you know, uh, <laughs> General Motors. Well, that was my nickname. <laughs>
1: I, I think they better? might they might have existed by 1941, but sure. So. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, you're, you're right. It is neat, to, that final reveal. I mean, one, you get the great parade of all the Navy and their whites, and they go by the Arizona, and that's a, you know, it's a neat thing to see, and that's such a such a uh, that's a moving sight to, to behold by everybody I know that has, has seen it. And you get to see the parade of the Navy. You get to see, like, all the people walking on the boat going, how is this, how do you get lost for a day at the sea? What kind of Navy is this? And Kirk Douglas is like – Never going to believe it. And he's got to go in there, you know, and tell them like, well, we ran into a storm. We ended up in December the 6th, 1941. I don't have any proof of any of this. You just have to trust me. And then we came back. Yeah, we shot down two Japanese Zeros. Um, I'm pretty sure that <laughs> now Samuel Chapman's going to be found to have died in a mysterious fire accident <laughs> on a remote island in Hawaii. But yeah, you know, and, but that's funny. You know, They go back to a different 1980 than what they left. That's what we have to remember, but it's one that is mostly the same, but there are some things that are different now. They, you know, there's the, there's no longer the twin pines mall. There's the lone pine mall. So there's, there's something different about the world that they just don't bother to explain with any of this. But
0: yeah, I think my joke, uh, the joke I actually made was, you know, McDonnell Douglas or uh, no, you know, Lockheed Martin. Well, I'm
1: Martin. <laughs> yeah. There you got time and Martin. Yeah. It's, it's our third son's name. So, uh, yeah. I, yeah. You, you, you get the great reveal though of, uh, Sheen walking off the boat. And of course the dog runs and we talked about it, but when he leans down into that, <laughs> and Sheen gives a great face performance again. When he goes, sit down, Mr. Lasky, we have a lot to talk about. And he's like, no shit. Like, yeah. Wh- what, what, <laughs> what happens? And my question to you is like, okay. Did they just kill him? <laughs> like, is Lasky just done and concrete chewed at that moment? Or did they at least get him back to the States before they took him out? Because there's no way you let a guy like that live after that moment.
0: Uh, I think you let him live, but you send him forward to the future to come back and, and with the next generation of
1: Tideman technology. Something, because a guy like him, he's, he's too much of a weasel, man. He's a loose end. Like He will tell. Like There's no way you can let that information out. At least that's, that's the cynical part of my brain took over at that moment. In this mo- movie's triumphant moment, I'm like, oh, yeah, they totally shot that poor guy. <laughs> like, yeah, I hope he didn't have a family. He didn't mention one, so that's probably good. But holy cow, like, it's just some suit, and all of a sudden he's just disappeared.
0: Maybe he's the guy from the future who ended up back in time. Ooh. In in a in a like a the similar kind of scenario, like he fell through some sort of time hole, just like the Nimitz did.
1: Interesting idea for sure. Well, we could go on all day about this for sure, but uh, you know, unfortunately, the semester is ending on time travel theory. So we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. Ron, what are yours for the final countdown?
0: As a Navy recruitment film, this thing is great as an actual movie, it's just kind of so, so, um, you know, Jay, you've brought up a lot of the issues involving the time travel subplot and some of the paradoxes and it's, it's not great, but I do have to say that it is interesting. Um, if only to see like what was then cutting edge technology and what is now kind of a, a relic of of America's bygone age, so to speak. So I'm going to give this bad boy a medium popcorn. It has some of the best like U.S. Navy in action B-roll that you're going to see. Um, and I really do think they could cut a really good Nimitz documentary out of this footage. And, of course, the Jolly Rogers and the, the practical dogfighting and plane – flight stuff is great Uh, but it's just a little bit thin for me
1: i think that is entirely fair uh, what you're saying obviously this is that i've held on to since childhood so i have a lot of feelings about it but not so much that i can't like pick it apart too like it is a thin plot the the feather i will give it on the other side of that is that it is something that spurs a conversation. And I think this is a fun movie to watch with people and then go, okay, you know, two things. One, can you talk about the logic of the movie and how does that all work and Tideman and, you know, come up with your own theory of how it orchestrates, but then also just the other idea of like, what would the world have been like if the Nimitz went through with it and they wiped out the Japanese fleet? Well, you end Japan's involvement in the war. Then you also have to go back and explain yourself to FDR, who was not exactly a man to be trifled with. (laughs) <laughs> as, as we all know from history, um, how does that all work out? Because then, then the next option is like, how fast can the Nimitz get to Europe, right? Because Berlin yeah, never gets bombed to death, like you, you, or London doesn't. Rather, you, you you change the world, and then you you don't think that the guys aboard the Nimitz eventually go like. Um, just so you know, um, Russia is going to be a problem for us. So, do you want us to go ahead and take care of that now too? Like really like Oh definitely. Yeah, you can change a lot with that. I mean, it almost happened at the end of World War II anyway,
0: so we may as well just go ahead and go with it.
1: Right. I mean that you could you could make a whole series out of that. Thinking about the other thing is you gotta remember too, aircraft carriers have a lot of stuff on them, but it's not unlimited. So at some point, like they are they don't have the ability to refuel, they don't have the ability to rearm. They have a they have a finite supply of the things that make them superior, so you have to very strategically deploy what they can do, and no telling how much of it has to get blown on the the Pearl Harbor attack. You know, I don't know. That, that's a fascinating just side. I, mean, I think you could
0: definitely you could definitely refuel because I think jet fuel hasn't changed all that much, but I do think that you, you do raise a good point about needing to rearm. However, there are a lot of technical manuals. On the nimitz, and yeah. there is a lot of, yeah. it and, just, and it's not like we we definitely had you know plutonium and uranium and stuff like that just hanging around because we were in the throes of developing our nuclear program, or we would be shortly. So right. well, after, no, I don't, I don't really there's about no the... need for project paperclip if we you know raise <laughs> Berlin. <laughs> with true, one true, jet fighter,
1: true, right? Yeah. That, what I'm more thinking about is it's not so much that the ship would would get to a point where it couldn't operate anymore. It's you can't rearm those planes. Like you can go sit down with Henry Ford and tell him, "Here's what I need you to build," and he's going to go. That's cool. None of that exists right now. So, like, I don't know what the hell that is, kid. I don't know what a cellulose thing case is. What? <laughs> like they they can't. You can't build a sidewinder in 1941. You know, there's only yeah, but you could probably slap some
0: some you know, V2s on there and Figure something
1: <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, well, yeah. Once you once you took them out, the one thing you probably could do, you probably could refit the guns. You probably could could refit the you know, the barrels, the guns, and because that was one thing we could we could definitely build guns in America. So the yeah, they could they could do stray fronts, I guess. We we've just built an entire like Harry Charles of alternate history here for what this Nimitz could have done in World War II. But I do think that's part of the fun of the movie is that it gives you that. And I'm getting around to finally to, to my my rating on all of this. This movie's not perfect by any means. It's got some great performances in. I think it's fun to watch these performers now, some of whom are long gone, but to see them really, some in their prime and really on the other side of their prime, but still doing good stuff. It's a medium popcorn for sure, but it's definitely one to watch. And if you haven't seen it, I hope we've intrigued you enough to give it a shot because I think the final countdown is definitely worth your time.
0: Yeah, it's definitely worth watching. Um, I I was a little skeptical going into it, but I'm glad I watched it. and And honestly, I will definitely watch it again. Yeah, it's definitely
1: when it rolls in on Prime, you know, usually for about half the year and then it right now I think we both watched it on you know, Tubi or the Roku channel or something. It's almost always streaming somewhere, so you can check it out.
0: Yeah, it's it's on Tubi, it's on Tubi and it's on Roku right now and it's definitely worth a watch cuz it it goes by pretty quick. I will say that. And uh maybe it's cuz I'm rapidly approaching middle-aged or already middle-aged and a dad, but it kind of hit the right Lay on the couch, kind of zone in and out. Maybe fall asleep for a little bit and wake up to the sound of gunfire. Sort of yeah,
1: movie. Yeah, r- really. Like if if you've ever seen this movie, or if you're just trying to absorb it, like when you hear the music kick up and they're just showing Navy stuff, you can go fix a sandwich. And when you hear dialogue start, come back uh, because that's we're we're at the intermission and now you're into the next act of the. I think you would. I you think you should reverse that. Oh, really? Oh, well, yeah. The, depending on what you're in for, if you want to catch the story, that's how you can. Uh, uh uh, absorb this thing. But it was a lot of fun talking about with you. Glad I got to introduce something that you you hadn't seen before. So That's, that's always a fun time to do here on Strip, Folks, thanks so much for listening to the show. Obviously, you can find the extensive archives of this podcast at FilmstripPodcast.com. Follow us on social media at FilmstripPod on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You follow us on Twitter. You will see our link tree now. We have all kinds of cool stuff happening. We've got a Facebook page with videos. We've got a YouTube page, Ron. We've done some Facebook live stuff all kinds of cool stuff going on out there and we appreciate your support folks of course always follow ron's stuff over at den of geek uh one of the best writers on the internet you need to be reading and following along with his stuff as well
0: you know what jay one of the things you don't want to forget about while you're promoting all the cool stuff we're doing on facebook live and with youtube and whatnot is our new letterbox page as you mentioned we've got an extensive archive and there's not really an easier way for you to scroll back through the archive and see what we've done. Then by going to the letterbox, because I sat down the other day and I made sure that all of it was uploaded with all of our movies tagged by the hosts. When we got special guests, i tagged the special guests. And of course, I uh, also have included links to everything. So if you want to hear Jay and Anna talk about Harry Potter, you, the link is right there in front of your face. Yeah, it's it's a pretty great way to uh, kind of keep up with everything that we've done. And on the occasions that I, I screw up and get ahead of our release schedule, see what we're going to be doing.
1: <laughs> yeah, you, you might get a tease on there. But yeah, Ron has done a great job putting that together. So check out our letterbox. Again, if you go to atfilmstrippod.com, On our socials, you'll find links to our link tree. All of it's there for you. Uh, We appreciate your support. Until next time, for Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website,
0: filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.